This week I found a place called uh, Tony Caputo's Market in Delhi. It's not in Lexington, it's in Salt Lake City. We got any people from Utah around here? The great state of Utah, you know? Well, Tony Caputo's is there. It's been there for a long time, and they sell all kinds of things that markets and delis usually sell, but they also sell coffee. And because they sell coffee there, uh, there's a group of old people who meet there every week, every day. They're, they're retired, and if you ask them uh, why they meet, they say, well, we come every day here to solve the world's problems. You guys have heard old people say that. I've never heard anybody say that at the age of 40, but they say it. And uh, one day, they meet every morning, and they say, you know what, there's a farmer's market right across the street. We should go and do what we do here and do it at the farmer's market. So they did. They got a booth and didn't sell anything at the booth. Not coffee, not anything for the market in Delhi. They just sat there as an old group of people, and they went to solve the world's problems. They did that for a few weeks, and then they decided to hang a, a banner as a joke over the booth that said, old coots giving bad advice that no one will listen to. And people started showing up. They would stand in a line and instead of this being a conversation, it ended up being like a panel. Where these people, especially young people, would show up and they would line up and ask this group of gray hairs what they should do about any given life situation. Of course, the group members were shocked. They couldn't believe that anyone wanted to know what they had to say. They were especially surprised at the genuineness of these young folks. I think this is an example. It contradicts all the research about how Americans value youth at the exclusion of the aged. You know, we see it with our obsession with new things, with fixating on people looking younger than they actually are. Without Hollywood, it almost exclusively cast younger persons in leading roles. And all this, it does erode our attitudes towards growing old. But if you have had people in your life who are older that listened well to your life circumstances, people in your life who are older, who knew your plight, who really cared about you, you know the kind of value that they can bring. If you haven't had those kind of people in your life, wouldn't you want advice from them about anything from finances to relationships to social issues? Well, there's a group of people in the New Testament who had an old man in their life who had seen it all. And it's the Apostle John. And the churches that he pastored are given these letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And they're written by this old man who loves his churches dearly. He calls them children. He calls them little children. Not because they were churches full of children, but because he was like a grandfather to them in terms of their faith. He was the great patriarch. He was the last living apostle. And you'll notice that he's old just by the way he writes. I mean, he, he, it, it, this reads like a sermon. It's like a string of tweets that don't have a lot of connection with one sentence to the next. He's got all these gold nuggets that he has to share because he's lived, lived life so well. This, this isn't a work like Paul, where it's, it's this precise work of logic where he starts with doctrinal issues in the first half of the letter and he ends up with practical issues in the second half of the letter. This is an old man, Grandpa John. So pull up a seat. Listen to this last living disciple as he drops truth bomb after truth bomb these next several weeks. And we're going to start 
this letter just by focusing on the first four verses. So let us read them. Verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The word of the Lord. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll notice what's absent here in the beginning of 1 John. There's no, uh, there, there, there's no introduction. Uh, there's no greeting as there are in the other letters in the New Testament. It seems like that he gets right to it because there's this urgency. It's, it's like an opposite of the Irish goodbye. I'm the king of Irish goodbyes. You know, Irish goodbye is just an abrupt exit. Well, this is an abrupt introduction. He cuts right to the chase. He gets to the message that's on his heart. And the content of his message we see in the first two verses and the consequences of his message we see in the second two verses. So let's start with the content. Now, I want you to remember this man, John the Apostle, was one of Jesus' disciples. And so John got to see Jesus walk on the water. John might have been the person who woke up Jesus from the nap when he was asleep in the boat during the storm. John was one of the people who got to hand out all the fish and all the loaves of bread, the feeding of the 5,000. John was one of those who heard the Sermon on the Mount live. And now he's gone on to do ministry for, to, for 40 to 50 years after Jesus has ascended. So John is one of the last surviving people who can say what is said in verses 1 and 2. That he has heard, that he's seen, and that he's touched Jesus. It's an escalating list. Did you notice that? It goes from the most abstract to the most material. I mean, simply to hear, it's not quite enough. I mean, the people of the Old Testament got to hear God's voice. Now, to have seen would be more compelling to see Jesus, but to have touched is the conclusive proof that Jesus is real. And so John is saying that his message is grounded in the historical reality of Jesus Christ as a person. He didn't dream this up. He witnessed it in his hearing, his seeing, and his touching of Jesus. He knows that Jesus has been this eternally pre-existent son of God who's now become a man. And Jesus has become a man so that he could experience firsthand the joys and the sorrows of being human. So that he could experience the trials and temptations that one inevitably faces. He's become a human so that the hopes and fears of day-to-day -day life are something that he knows. But here's the thing. No one was asking God to send his predicted son. There had been nothing but silence. No prophets had been, been around since the time of Malachi, 450 years. Until Jesus shows up to be heard and seen and touched in the gospel. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to deliberately reveal himself. He did that then and he still does it for you and I today. Even when we don't ask, he shows up. 
And this emphasis of God revealing himself through his son as a human, it's needed for us today. For many of us, we have made the Christian faith something that's theoretical. It's a, it's a philosophy or it's a morality or it's a subjective religious experience. See, if you make Christian, the Christian faith a philosophy, you'll spend all your time focusing on learning. When you make it a morality, you spend all your time doing. When you make it a subjective religious experience, you spend all your time trying to work yourself up into some kind of mystical state. But that's not the message that John or the New Testament proclaims. The message of the Christian faith is a person. It's Jesus, someone who is audible and visual and tangible. So as important as these facts are, these historical facts about Jesus being a human being, about his teaching, about his miracles, we've got to take the next step. I mean, consider the difference between these two statements. Here's the first one. Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross in Jerusalem. It's the first statement. Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on the cross in Jerusalem. Versus the second statement. Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on a cross in Jerusalem for our sin. Do you see the difference? I tacked on for our sin at the end. See, the first statement just... It just states certain facts about the man Jesus, while the second statement interprets the significance of Jesus. So you need the history, and you need to interpret it by faith. For instance, if I asked you why you're a Christian, and you said that you're a Christian because you obey Jesus, or I'm a Christian because I got saved when I was 8 or 22 or 86, or if I ask you why you're a Christian and you say it's because you believe certain Christian doctrine, then you're basing your Christianity on you. What John is saying is that the message of Christianity, the content of Christianity is about a person, Jesus, period. That's the content of the Christian faith, the person of Jesus Christ. And there's consequences, there's three. He lists them out. The first one's proclamation. You see it in verses two, three, and four. See, because Jesus has revealed himself to John the apostle, John can't help but communicate about it. Look at verse two. Verse two says that he testifies and proclaims Jesus. Look at verse three. He proclaims Jesus. Look at verse four. Now he writes about Jesus. See, this whole issue of Jesus being a person isn't something that he can hold in. It's not something he's going to monopolize because he wants his readers to enjoy all the same advantages that he enjoyed as a disciple of Jesus. And this word testify is really important because he's saying that the objective reality of Jesus is something that he has entered into personally, that this isn't a cultural thing for him. It's not something that he's gathered secondhand from other people. It's been a first-hand encounter that he confidently proclaims to those he loves. So it's the person of Jesus, and the content of the Christian faith is now your faith. Now what flows naturally out of that is some kind of proclamation that you're burdened for other people to experience this person in the way that you have. It's a consequence. There's a second one you see in verse 3. Verse 3, you see the word fellowship. Now remember, he's 
proclaiming a person. He's not proclaiming a philosophy, a morality, or a mysticism. He's, he, he's proclaiming a person, a person that you can have fellowship with. And now he wants those that he loves to fellowship with other Christians and with the Father and the Son. That's what's going on in verse 3. When you hear the word fellowship, what does it conjure up for you? Does it conjure up the church basement? You know, coffee? Donuts? Spalding donuts these days? Maybe it's a potluck dinner? That's where fellowship is a, a word that is used almost exclusively in church settings. But what is it? Well, fellowship just means a shared life. It means that you have this conscious, continuous, intimate fellowship or relationship with God and with other people. That's what John's message, John's proclamation is all about. Fellowship. Doesn't this reorient things for you? I mean, that means when you come to worship on a Sunday, you're trying to further commune with God and with his people. Life's about fellowship. So when you come to worship, it's not about checking a box. It's not about getting your kids involved with something positive. It's not about getting a couple pointers for life. When you come to worship on Sundays, it's about engaging with the person of Jesus. You see how you engage with him in worship? You, you pray to him after a confession of sin and silence. You pray to him in that moment of silence after the sermon and before communion. You're engaging with Jesus. But you're also engaging with Jesus when you do our corporate prayers that we say together. You're talking to him, but he talks to you. He talks to you through his word all throughout the service, but predominantly in the sermon, in the, in the text that we look at each Sunday. And that's what it means to commune with God, to fellowship with God. It happens here in a concentrated way. But there's also communing with other people. We encourage this on Sunday. That's why we have this awkwardly long greeting of peace. I mean, really long. I, I mean, you could go to a hundred other churches that have a greeting of peace. Not all churches do, but if you go to a hundred churches that have a greeting of peace, you'll, you'll come back and say, wow, it is loud in here during greeting of peace. Wow, this is 10 times longer than any greeting of peace I went to at those other hundred churches. That's all on purpose because we want you to fellowship with one another, but you need it more than just on Sundays. You need to have a touch during the week. That's why we push small groups as hard as we do around here. Because we want you to have fellowship with one another. That's why we're really careful not to put anything else on the calendar because we really want to emphasize this whole idea of fellowship, of community, of relationships. We can emphasize lots of things around here. We can emphasize mercy or evangelism or education-type classes. They're all good things. They're all things we can't neglect, but you can't emphasize everything. And we emphasize fellowship because we think that there is perhaps no greater need to be addressed in America, especially for a transient place like Lexington, and addressing this whole issue of loneliness. It's an epidemic. And that's at the root of so many of the problems that we face we're trying to solve. Addiction, pornography, eating disorders, mental illness, you name it. I could make a case that almost all of them, at the root of them, is this whole idea of loneliness. But you got to be careful. Just because you want to come to church, just because you want to make friends, doesn't mean that, we've got, that we, we don't have to make things really clear. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer does it as good as anybody. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, he's one of my favorites, but he was, uh, 
He was martyred uh, at the end of World War II by Hitler because he was trying to assassinate Hitler. He was a pastor, a German pastor. He wrote this little book called Life Together. It's brilliant. In the second chapter, he writes this about community. He says, I have community with others only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. And that dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He's looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He's bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. And just at this point, Christian brotherhood is threatened most often at the very start by the greatest danger of all, the danger of being poisoned at its root, the danger of confusing Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship. In Christian brotherhood, everything depends upon its being clear right from the beginning. First, the Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. And second, the Christian brotherhood is a spiritual, not a psychic reality. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Christian fellowship is an objective reality. You don't have to feel close to another Christian in order to have fellowship with them. And when you see this richness, this necessity for the kind, this kind of Christian fellowship, you begin to walk into places like this. And you're not, you, you begin to ask questions like, who is alone? Who can I include? Instead of asking, who do I know? So instead of searching for community, you begin to create, to seek to create community that Jesus is talking about. I mean, that's what Jesus has done with the disciples. I mean, think about it. He's included them into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in many ways, with the disciples, as they go out and do ministry, as the New Testament unfolds, they're just continuing to pull people into the divine relational orbit that they have experienced through Jesus. So we've got to pursue this kind of fellowship that isn't built, isn't built first on common interests, not built first on common life stages. It's not built on a long relational history that reaches back to hometowns or to college. We've got to see that there's as much chance for us to have Christian fellowship with someone we spent very little time with and that we vary in interest and in life stage as the person that we share almost everything in common with. See, Bonhoeffer is saying that there's great danger in prizing other things in relationship with Christians over Christ because we bring, to quote him again, our muddled and impure desires into them. I think this is a good word for us, isn't it? I mean, our church, when uh, we started, uh, many of you were in college. That was eight years ago. Some of you were 23 or 24. And guess what? All of us are like 30 or 31, you know? And guess what's happened between 24 and 31? Same thing's happened for a lot of us during 24. We've, had, we've endured all these same experiences together. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's not like I've tried to go out there and say, you know what, I want to plant a church that's full of people in their 20s and 30s. Because I'll tell you one thing. I don't really love being one of the oldest people around here. <laughs> but we've got to be able to see Christian fellowship as not just having shared interests in a long relational history, but to see it as an objective reality that we have through Christ. The only way you get to another person through Jesus himself. So fellowship, it's a consequence of this person, Jesus. There's one more, it's joy. I mean, these are pretty good consequences, right? I mean, you have a message. You have fellowship with Jesus and other people. And look at verse four, you have something else. You have joy. <laughs> you see our joy? So it almost sounds like uh, John is saying, I'm writing these things so that my joy can be complete, that somehow I'm kind of pent up and I'm not going to be really let loose until I'm able to write this letter. But what I found out this week, and I, I read five different commentaries on this, and there's multiple manuscripts for 1 John. One, one of the most contentious places in the New Testament for manuscript evidence is this word, our. Because in three of them, it says your, and two of them, it says our. But here's the thing. There's a place in 1 John and there's a place in the Gospel of John that says almost this says our in one place and your in another. So you can really take it either way. That really was at the heart of what John wants and what he wants for his people is he wants them to have joy. It's like this final pearl on this pearl necklace in this passage. It all starts with a person of Jesus that creates a proclamation that then results in fellowship with the triune God and with his people, and then it creates joy in the believing heart. And maybe this is news to you that Christianity has as its chief concern, this whole issue of joy. Maybe you thought the Christian faith was most concerned about sacrifice or obedience or any number of things, but not joy. Perhaps the Christians you've known didn't seem to have much room for joy in their life, but according to John, that's an indictment on them and not on Christianity. Do you ever wonder why we sing on Sundays? Why are Christians so intent about singing? I mean, I go all week long and I don't sing with anybody else. You know, I sing in my car. I might sing in the shower. But I always sing here. It's the only place that I sing with other people. It's kind of weird. If you don't go to church, it's real weird to come to church and you've got to sing with other people. You, you've not done it since you've been at a concert. And for a lot of us, we've not been to a concert for a long time. And one of my favorite quotes is by Martin Luther, and he says, never trust a theologian who doesn't sing. <laughs> what Luther is saying is that the Christian faith is about joy. So now, we have all these things. We have this message in the person of Jesus. We've got these relationships, and we've got joy, and they're all ours. You know why? Because Jesus gave them up. We would have no message if he did not come to endure a life of suffering and die a substitutionary death. We have no fellowship with the Godhead or with his people if Jesus wasn't willing to be separated from his Father. We would have no joy if Jesus had not made the cross his joy. So brothers and sisters, we sit down to this old man, next to this old man, John. Will you hear his final words about what life is really all about? We think life gets sidetracked and Life is all about diets or 401ks or vacations or school choices. 
John is trying to say, he's trying to put Jesus on display for us here. And he says, you can hear him. You can see him. You can touch him with the eyes of faith. Let's pray.